Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 29th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faljudo, and from the front page of today's Gazette, Pervasive, Persistent, Harmful, Forever Chemicals. Learn how Iowa is combating them and how to keep water safer by Brittany Miller. Josh Rodriguez has worked as a territory manager for Culligan of Marion, a water, tri- water treatment equipment supplier for 25 years. In the last six years, a new concern has cropped up among his customers. Chemicals known as Parand Polyfluoralkyl Substances, or PFAs. Rodriguez said he has responded to as much as a dozen such calls over the past year, particularly from customers around Central City and the Eastern Iowa Airport, where the chemicals have been detected in drinking water supplies. It is something that's becoming more and more common to hear customers asking about, he said. They just ask if we have any kind of treatment for PFAs, if there's anything they can do to filter it out of the water. Federal and state agencies have struggled to keep up with what scientists are learning about PFAs, which is that the chemicals are pervasive, persistent, and harmful. Here's what we know about the forever chemicals, how Iowa is combating them, and what you can do to help keep your drinking water safe. PFAs refer to a group of thousands of human-made chemicals that have been used to make materials resistant to heat, oil, stains, grease, and water since the 1930s. You can find them in common products like nonstick cookware, water-resistant clothes, cleaning supplies, food packaging, and adhesives. Although two of the most studied types of PFAs, perfluorooctanoic acid, or PFOA, and perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, PFOS, are no longer produced in the United States, other varieties are still used across manufacturing and industrial sectors. They're often called forever chemicals because their molecular structures are made of strong bonds so they don't degrade easily. That allows them to build up and persist over time. PFAs can end up in the environment through several avenues. They're in treated leachate, the water that percolates through landfills and leaches contaminants, and industrial wastewater that is discharged into waterways. They're in the sewage waste often applied to fields where they can infiltrate groundwater. They're in some firefighting foams that were widely used for decades. A 2021 study found evidence of the chemicals in a third of sampled waterways in Iowa. They are basically in our soil, they're in our water, they're in the air, said Corey McCoy, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources PFAS coordinator. It's across all media when it comes to the environment. Humans can be exposed to PFAs through their drinking water, food, consumer products, and surroundings. A recent study found eating one freshwater fish could equal a month of drinking PFAS contaminated water. Long-term exposure is linked to myriad negative health impacts, including cancer risks, reproductive effects, child development, hormones, immune systems, and cholesterol levels. Research on PFAAs and their health effects still is evolving, said David Swertney, Director of Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination at the University of Iowa. Much of that information comes from studying communities near PFAS manufacturers. Iowa hasn't conducted that level of study yet. We don't have, that we know of yet, some of the levels of contamination that you might have, say, in Michigan, Swertney said, referencing PFAS contamination from shoe manufacturer Wolverine Worldwide. What we do know is it's dangerous down to very low levels. Are PFAS regulated? The short answer is federal regulations are in the works and the Iowa DNR is planning to follow suit. The Environmental Protection Agency sent a health advisory, a non-enforceable threshold at which drinking water contaminant is deemed harmful, at 70 parts per trillion for both PFOA and PFOS in 2016. 
Last summer, that advisory was adjusted to near zero levels, 0.004 parts per trillion for PFOA and 0.02 parts per trillion for PFOS. The EPA also added health advisories for two more types of PFAs that often replace PFOA and PFOS in manufacturing. To give you an example, one part per trillion is one second in 32,000 years or one drop of water in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools, McCoy said. It's very small amounts that we're talking about, which makes it hard to analyze. The EPA must create a level that takes those restraints into account in order to be realistically enforceable. That's why he doubts the regulation will be as strict as health advisories. PFAS contamination wasn't discovered in Iowa until around 2019, when contamination was detected at two Iowa National Guard bases in Des Moines and Sioux City. By January 2020, the Iowa DNR published its PFAS Action Plan, a document outlining the department's initial steps for tackling the emerging contaminant. Its dominant focus? Uncovering any contamination in drinking water. To start, the Iowa DNR created a sampling plan that split water suppliers into tiers based on how susceptible their wells were to PFAS contamination. Vulnerability largely depends on the type and thickness of geological layers surrounding an aquifer. Without any federal or state regulations in place for monitoring PAF, PFAS and wastewater discharges, the Iowa DNR doesn't have the authority to sample potential sites to see if they're actually using chemicals. A federal PFAS discharge limit is still being developed, along with guidance on how to properly destroy and dispose of the chemicals. Also from the front page, Dems elect Rita Hart as leader by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Rita Hart, a former candidate for Congress and Lieutenant Governor and one of the last Democrats to represent a rural district in the legislature, was elected Saturday by her fellow Iowa Democrats to lead the party as it attempts to rebound from a string of poor election performances in the state. Elected to a two-year term during a virtual meeting of the Iowa Democratic Party's leadership committee, Hart assumes leadership of the state party as Democrats are reeling from poor election outcomes in 2014, 2016, 2020, and 2022 in the state as the party is fresh off its presidential caucuses being stripped of their enviable first-in-the-nation status. Hart, 66, of Wheatland, did not immediately speak after her election, but during her remarks ahead of the vote pledged to focus primarily on winning elections in Iowa. Hart noted that she twice won elections in a statehouse district carried by Donald Trump and outperformed Joe Biden more than other Democratic congressional candidates. She said she has gained even more perspective on what it will take for Iowa Democrats to win elections again while serving as chair of the Clinton County Democrats over the past year. I've seen at a grassroots level the kind of support that our country party county parties need in order to work more effectively. I'm under no illusions that this will be easy, and I know that it will take time, but I'm heartened by the support that I've heard from state party leadership committee and from folks across our state. Hart succeeds State Representative Ross Wilburn from Ames, who stepped down after serving as party chair the past two years. Wilburn was the first black Iowan to serve as a major party state chair. And also from the front page, Hospital Explores Live Streams for Parents by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette in Iowa City. Every tiny fist, every open eye, every infant smirk, whether gas-induced or not, is a big deal to new moms and dads getting the first glimpse of their newest family member. So missing those milestones and moments of connection can further aggravate the anxious experience of seeing a newborn whisked away to the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU. When we were checking out, it was like we were leaving with a little stranger because at that point I had held him for maybe 10 minutes, said Blake Roop, 35, of Iowa City, who on February 24, 2020, gave birth to a son with low blood sugar and fever. 
They decided they would have to take him down to give him a treatment course for what they were presuming was sepsis, which was terrifying. Ravenroop, now about to celebrate his third birthday, stayed in the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics NICU for only three days before being discharged. But during his stay, Roop, recovering herself, saw him just two to three times, each visit brief. By the time I would get there, I would have to turn around and go back to get my own vitals, she said. It would have been really nice to be able to check in and see how he was doing. The UI Stead Family Children's Hospital is considering installing a NICU camera system that will allow families of intensive care infants to do just that. Watch a live stream of their baby stretching and arching and blinking, or just sleeping. I didn't know that such a service like this could be an option. It didn't occur to me that this could be a thing. But now that I know about it, I really would like it to happen, Roop said. That would be such a great service for parents, even family members that aren't able to be in the hospital. The university in November began looking for an established and proven comprehensive web video streaming solution to provide video access to family members of babies in the NICU, which includes 88 beds in private and semi-private rooms spread over two units. The university's NICU annually admits about 1,000 babies from Iowa and neighboring states, reporting a 95% survival rate among all its infant patients. For premature babies born 27 weeks of pregnancy or after, UIHC's survival rate is 96% or higher. Among babies born at 22 weeks, UIHC's survival rate is 57%, higher than 30% 30 reported last year nationally and 7% reported nationally between 2008 and 2012. UIHC hasn't used a NICU bed camera system before, positioning the prospect of one as a potential new service to families, according to UIHC spokeswoman Laura Shoemaker. Web camera systems are, she said, used in other NICUs nationally to support family-centered care. These systems allow families to have a safe, secure connection to view their baby while they are not able to be present, she said. This helps to build trust with families and increases satisfaction and family participation when they are not at the bedside. Parents have to return to work before the baby is discharged or care for other children at home so not, cannot be present at all times, Shoemaker said. This allows for parents to see their baby through a safe, secure connection when they are unable to be here in the NICU. Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading In the News, Private School Assistance Program, now law, all public school students and thousands of private school students will soon be eligible for $7,598 in a state-funded education savings account that can be used on private school tuition and related costs after Governor Kim Reynolds signed her chief legislative priority into law Tuesday. Democrats said the law would siphon money out of public schools, fund non-accountable private institutions, and argued private schools could turn away students with disabilities. Proponents said the law will allow parents to choose the education that is best for their children. Heightened penalties for drug sale resulting in death. It would be a Class B felony to deliver an illegal drug to someone if it results in their death under a bill proposed by Republican Attorney General Brenna Byrd. The bill would address what Byrd said is an imbalance in how the law treats such cases, as there isn't currently a higher charge if a drug sale results in a death. Bill Creating Rural Emergency Hospitals Advances Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill this past week that would allow rural hospitals to discontinue inpatient care and focus on providing outpatient services and emergency medical care through a standalone emergency room. It also increases Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates for patients treated at those facilities. The bill will bring Iowa in line with the 2021 federal law championed by Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. Republicans limit SNAP benefits will allow meat. Lawmakers advanced a bill Thursday placing limitations on the food assistance program known as SNAP. 
The bill would require extra identity verification, require the state to examine records to ensure eligibility, and require recipients to work at least 20 hours a week. The bill as written bars SNAP recipients from buying fresh meat, nuts, and many cooking essentials, but Republicans say they plan to amend it to allow most of the food back into the program, excluding candy and soda. Proponents of the bill said it would place a limit on state expenses for the program, but opponents said it was overly burdensome to low-income Iowans requiring food assistance. Party leaders urge continued fight for caucuses. A bipartisan group of former party leaders urged Iowa Democrats to continue fighting to keep Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses. Former Iowa Democratic Party Chairman David Nagel said Iowa Democrats should go first in the presidential nominating contest, regardless of the calendar the National Party approves. The Democratic National Committee will meet next month to vote on a new calendar that excludes Iowa from the early window, and they're expected to pass the measure. Tenure prohibition proposal stalls in-house. A proposal to prohibit tenure at Iowa's public universities will once again be shelved after the lawmaker who proposed it decided against advancing it. But in the Senate, a lawmaker who proposed the measure in the past said he would introduce legislation that would require universities to more frequently review tenured faculty. Under the heading, they said, For the first time, we're funding students instead of a system. We're rejecting the idea that the answer to improving education is simply throwing more money into the same system. Governor Kim Reynolds before signing her private school assistance bill. And they are pouring taxpayer dollars into private schools that will not help all Iowa kids and it will hurt our public schools and rural communities. Democratic Senator Zach Walls on Reynolds' private school assistance bill. Under the heading Odds and Ends, lawmakers request report on college terms. House Republicans advanced a bill that would require Iowa's public universities' education colleges to create a report defining a list of terms that are taught in those colleges. Terms include culturally responsive classroom, anti-racist and anti-oppressive teaching and learning, and compulsory heterosexuality. Black bear protections proposed. Lawmakers are considering a bill that would make it a crime to shoot and kill a black bear in Iowa. Black bears are not common in the state, but they occasionally wander in from neighboring states, and the Department of Natural Resources expects their population will grow in the near future. And under the heading Water Cooler, COVID cases fall. Iowa's COVID-19 cases continue to fall in the week ending Wednesday. There were 1,566 new cases reported, down from 1,690 the previous week. There were 154 people hospitalized with COVID-19 in the state, down from 177 the previous week. And recall elections possible. Iowa lawmakers are considering a constitutional amendment that would allow voters to recall an elected official. A petition with a set number of signatures would need to be filed before a special election would be held to recall the official. The amendment would need to pass in the legislature twice and pass a popular vote before becoming law. Turning to the Insight page, Althea Cole writes, Do public schools reflect a gold standard of transparency? There was a time I wondered if the dream of school choice would ever be realized in the Iowa legislature. After several years of trying and failing, education savings accounts are finally the law of the land in Iowa. It will not be without its complications, but new or old, show me a government process that is executed perfectly and I will show you the unicorn that lives in my guest bedroom. I'm not oblivious to the fact that those who are opposed to ESAs make for some of the louder and angrier voices in the debate. Rather than make my own projections about why the liberal left hates school choice, such as the fact that the teachers union that acts as an ATM for Iowa Democrats can't grow its ranks in a private school, a lot of my focus has been on the specific arguments against school choice. Last week, I explored the notion that private schools have no accountability and pointed out the high standards for accreditation for non-public schools in Iowa. 
Public and private institutions face a surprising number of identical standards, especially when it comes to accreditation. I received quite a few responses to my column on accountability last week, and while no one wanted to claim that private schools have inferior standards of education, some claim that they have inferior standards of transparency compared to public schools. I'm happy to consider that argument. It remains true that public and private schools are different systems with different processes, and private school operations are not subject to scrutiny from the public as a whole. But some contend that private schools cannot be duly accountable for their practices without the same transparency rules imposed upon them as public schools. I maintain that accountability is not limited to public scrutiny. Even without it, a private school has myriad ways and reasons to keep their operations on the up and up. Beyond that, I am unmoved by that assertion that public scrutiny is a school's only acceptable standard of accountability for a single reason. Simple reason. I've noticed that rules on paper don't always equal obligations met in practice. My own alma mater serves as one example. In November 2021, Jacob Hall, who owns and writes for the conservative editorial site The Iowa Standard, made a public records request with the Linmar Community School District in Marion after parents reached out to complain about recently observed Trans Week events at the high school, which was planned and put on by a school-sponsored organization. State law says that because public school districts are a government body, those records must be produced. The same law allowed the school district to charge Hall a reasonable amount to cover the cost of providing them. After initially quoting a fee of $504, the district then clarified that the fee was for communications from a single employee. Hall had sought any and all communication between Linmar staff about Trans Week. The total cost for staff to, uh, time to retrieve the records and attorney time to review and redact confidential information for the entire district, wrote the school official, would total around $604,000. That figure drew fire from both the left and the right, and for good reason. It was preposterous. With no evidence to the contrary, it was also perfectly legal. If Hall was intent on proceeding with his request for any and all communications from district staff and board members, he would have had either had to pay the $604,000 in full or legally contest the reasonableness of the fee with no guarantee of prevailing. Even after Hall narrowed his request for communication to a small list of specific employees over a specific one-month period, he had to pay $652 for 57 pages of information, a figure that would still be prohibitive to many wishing to utilize the guarantee of transparency to hold their public schools accountable. Some might dismiss Hall's experience because of his conservative ideology, but the skepticism surrounding the early departure of Tom Ahart, former superintendent for the Des Moines Public Schools, is hardly limited to right-wing ideologues. Did the standards for transparency touted by the defenders of the public system ensure that the district met its obligations to his residents? You be the judge. The final years of Ahart's tenure involved multiple controversies. In 2019, Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, criticized Ahart in an editorial for blaming a lack of state funding for the closure of a ninth grade school and the sale of an administrative building. At the same time, according to Evans, Ahart hadn't shared with residents that the district had almost $100 million in saved tax revenue available for building needs. One week after voters approved a tax levy to supposedly address the DMPS crumbling infrastructure, plans were revealed for DMPS to partner with Drake University to build a brand new soccer stadium to be shared between the two institutions. DMPS was to contribute $15 million. Residents from the district were unhappy enough with DMPS and Ahart's seemingly mismatched priorities that they organized to attempt another form of accountability specific to the public system, a public referendum to vote on the district's use of saved funds to build the stadium. Although the group collecting the signatures contended they had more than enough to force a referendum, a ruling on a technicality from the Iowa Supreme Court allowed the district to reject the petition and the attempt of 7,120 residents to hold their district accountable. 
After a clash with the state that almost got Ahart stripped of his administrator's license over defiance of a law requiring a return to in-person learning during the pandemic, the DMPS board voted in 2021 not to renew his contract. Instead of finishing out the contract, which was set to end on June 30th this year, Ahert instead tendered his resignation effective June 30, 2022, a full year before the contract's expiration. Despite Ahart's voluntary separation last summer, the DMPS board inexplicably agreed to pay him his full salary and benefits through the end of this school year. The separation agreement also stipulates that should his participation be required to resolve any legal issues arising from his and the district's refusal to reopen schools during the pandemic, he is entitled to compensation at the hourly equivalent of his old salary, or $147 per hour for doing so. Opponents of school choice who claim lack of transparency in private school systems imply that because per-pupil dollars come from state taxes, institutions who receive those dollars should be subject to state transparency standards. But district residents and state taxpayers will likely never know why DMPS agreed to pay a former employee who left on his own accord and amid seemingly rocky circumstances almost $400,000 for no work. While open meeting laws do not extend to personnel considerations, any details of Ahart's departure not covered by confidentiality protections are likely still off-limits to concerned citizens. And Todd Dorman writes in his In Iowa column, With Iowa GOP budget, you have to love subtraction. Understanding budget policy under the golden dome of wisdom, now redder than ever, is pretty simple. You just have to love subtraction. Take Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget for fiscal 2024, which begins July 1st. Under Iowa law, legislators can spend 99% of available general fund revenues estimated by the Revenue Estimating Conference in December. In fiscal year 2024, available revenue under the spending limitation law is $10.38 billion, according to the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. That comes from income taxes, sales taxes, carried over surplus dollars, and other assorted taxes. But the governor's budget plan appropriates $8.48 billion, or about 82% of available revenues. Reynolds subtracts nearly $2 billion in a large budget surplus at the end of FY 2024. A large chunk of that surplus, $662.6 million, will flow into the Taxpayer Relief Fund. The fund was created to cover the budgetary cost of tax cuts. Under the governor's plan, the balance in the Taxpayer Relief Fund would grow to $3.42 billion. During the current 2023 fiscal year, Republicans spent around 88% of available revenues, socking away more than $800 million. This has been the plan for several years now. Spend far less than what's available, run up large surpluses with the help of federal pandemic stimulus bucks, and send hundreds of millions of dollars to the Taxpayer Relief Fund. If your top priority is cutting taxes, this makes a lot of sense. If you amass billions of dollars in extra dough, you can plug budgetary holes caused by any potential loss of revenue. Curtailing state spending growth is a nice bonus. But if your priorities are providing adequate funding to public schools, state universities, mental health care, state parks, and other budget priorities, this sort of budgeting shrinks the pie of available funds. While funding slightly increases or stagnates, the stack of bucks to cover tax cuts grows. What's the practical effect? The governor has proposed increasing state aid to public schools in 2024 by $89.8 million, or 2.5%. That's a small number, given the $2 billion planned surplus. But Senate Republicans are proposing an even smaller increase, 2%, although they insist it's just a starting point. School leaders have argued they need at least a 4% increase to fund their operations amid continuing inflation. They're not going to get it. Instead, Republicans decided to spend $107 million next year to fund education savings accounts to cover tuition for for private school students. 
the cost of that program will go to $345 million annually, so the budget pie of available dollars gets smaller. As new tax cuts take effect and as Republicans come up with new ideas for reducing revenue, the pressure to build surpluses into the budget will grow and the pie will keep shrinking. It's telling that the big Republican tax objective this year is cutting property taxes. Curtailing revenue for local governments won't put any more pressure on the state budget. Sorry, cities and counties. We're often told that we're just one more big tax cut away from becoming an economic utopia, or maybe South Dakota, if that's your idea of a utopia. But as I wrote last year, I've seen at least six bills declared to be the largest tax cut in Iowa history passed during my journalism career. Each brought the same promises of dynamic economic growth while discounting the argument that strong schools, universities, civil rights protections, and a clean environment also are strong selling points. Some Republicans still want to eliminate the state income tax, which brings in roughly half of general fund revenue. Again, South Dakota is the model. According to a Department of Revenue report issued in late 2020, all of the tax cuts, credits, and exemptions approved by lawmakers over the past 30 years or so add up to $15.9 billion annually. That's more than double the $7.1 billion in cuts on the books in 2005, and with more recent cuts, that big number has grown. Many of these cuts were supported by lawmakers from both parties, and no doubt some of these tax changes have had positive effects. The point is, it's never enough. Conservative think tanks have endless ideas for how to cut more taxes and slice government spending. Iowa Republicans are listening. And under the current regime, tax cuts are everything. State funding now makes up a larger share of public school funding as part of an effort to reduce property taxes. That's also the main reason why the state took over funding county and regional mental health services. We have billion-dollar surpluses to cover the holes left by waves of income tax cuts. Revenues are already being depleted by new cuts. Apparently, most Iowa voters approve of this approach, especially wealthy GOP donors who benefit from this brand of budgeting. They get their way on taxes, private school vouchers, slashed regulations and government inaction. They get many pluses while the rest of us get subtraction. And we have a guest column from Dr. Michael Brooks, an Iowa rheumatologist who works in the Cedar Rapids area and is a board member for the Rheumatology Association of Iowa. Iowa health plans don't provide stable care for chronic illness. We all know someone, a friend, family member, maybe even yourself, who has an incurable health condition. If untreated, these conditions can cause major disruptions to daily life or become debilitating. Often though, these conditions are manageable with proper treatment. As a rheumatologist, I work with Iowans to find treatments that work for conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, and I see firsthand what happens when treatments that work are taken away by patients' health plans. Patients often struggle to identify an appropriate treatment for their chronic conditions. Seemingly endless scans, tests, labs, and conversations with their provider can make a patient feel hopeless, but when they are able to identify the treatment that manages their condition, that all becomes worth it. Unfortunately, insurers often meddle in this process. I personally witnessed a patient of mine lose access to a prescription that she had been medically stable on for years. She was effectively priced out by her health plan and could no longer afford the increased out-of-pocket costs. This loss of access to her medication put her in a tailspin, resulting in a lengthy hospital stay to stabilize her condition. In the end, she lost her life due to a decision made by an insurer trying to save a few dollars. As a rheumatologist, my patients have complex care needs and rely on stability in their treatments to manage their conditions. Providers may spend years of trial and error finding a treatment regimen that properly manages their condition. The resulting course of treatment must carefully balance each patient's medical history, comorbid conditions, and potential side effects. Treatment plans are carefully chosen. Even slight deviations in treatment and variations between drugs, even those that are similar, can cause serious adverse reactions. 
All this hard work and struggle to find the right treatment is immediately undone when health plans decide to prioritize their profits over the well-being of their members. Non-medical switching occurs when health plans force a stable patient to switch from their effective medication by making the patient's current medication financially unreachable. Health plans accomplish this by removing the drug from their formulary, moving the drug to a more restrictive formulary tier, or using other means to increase the patient's out-of-pocket costs and decrease their predicted profit losses. When patients can't afford their medication, there's more than a financial cost. This is true for all chronic conditions, such as diabetes, cancer, epilepsy, and mental illness. Non-medical switching can cause patients to backslide, resulting in the re-emergence of symptoms or worsening of condition. The resulting disease progression can be irreversible, life-threatening, and cause the patient's original treatment to lose effectiveness. It cannot be assumed that a treatment that works for one patient will work for each patient. These one-size-fits-all decisions disrupt clinicians' ability to use their medical expertise in concert with their patients' needs. I am not unconcerned with the cost of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. However, non-medical switching is a poor way to control costs and leads to larger follow-up costs that swamp any upfront savings. Physicians, pharmacists, and other healthcare administrators have reported that non-medical switching increases administrative time, side effects, and downstream costs. Iowa's legislators can put an end to non-medical switching this year. Preventing this practice would save patient lives. However, providers, patients, and advocates face a deeply entrenched industry on these issues. Ensuring that legislators are educated and aware of the harm of non-medical switching is critically important. And turning to the syndicated editorial cartoon by Clay Bennett, distributed by Counterpoint Media, we see three workmen each carrying cardboard boxes with an arrow pointed to the National Archives. The first workman has a cardboard box with classified stamped on the front and Biden on the side. The next man has one cardboard box with classified stamped on it and Pence written on the side. The third workman is carrying five boxes with classified stamped on the front and Trump written on the side with a caricature of Donald Trump holding onto that workman's leg attempting to hold him back. The first community letter is from Jeff Lindeman of Cedar Rapids. When away from home, red Iowa not missed. An uncomfortable feeling that lands somewhere between disgust and rage is brewing in my brain. I was born in Iowa and have lived in Iowa for 66 years, minus four years of college and an internship out of state 44 years ago. I've always loved Iowa and living in Cedar Rapids. My wife and I spend two months each winter in Florida and we enjoy our time there. I look forward to coming back home each year until 2016 and the election of Donald Trump as president. The MAGA craze that deepened the red state status of Iowa resulted in attacks against young people, marginalized people, and the compassionate nature that I valued in Iowa. Unfortunately, though I looked forward to returning to Cedar Rapids, my neighborhood and great friends, it's not Iowa that I missed at all. I've learned that Florida Governor DeSantis considers me woke, whatever that means. Therefore, not surprisingly, Florida and I are not a good match. I returned home to Cedar Rapids, a port in the political storm. Jeff Lindeman of Cedar Rapids. Next letter is from Kevin Thuma of Cedar Rapids. Guide future politics by joining a party. In this great country of ours, political party affiliation is not required. Registered citizens can just show up on election day and cast their vote. However, if you want to influence change at the grassroots, you must register and participate in your local meetings. These meetings are open to the public, but only vetted party members can propose changes and vote on these modifications. This is the best example of a representative republic we have. Sometimes it isn't the prettiest vision of watching the sausage being made, but the final version has been presented, debated, thoroughly discussed, and then passed or not, depending on the pawn the majority of votes cast. 
It is one thing to vote, another thing to have an opinion or complain, but something totally different to guide the direction and future of your political party. Can you help your party become better? Join us. Independent or non-party affiliates need not apply. Kevin Thuma of Cedar Rapids. And we have Carrie Driscoll of Iowa City writes, link to tweet blurs journalistic line. In the January 24th article, allegation of racially charged comment by official toward Iowa City High basketball coach during Monday night game, a link to a video of the altercation was included in the online edition. When a reader clicked on the link, they were directed to an unofficial Twitter account associated with another Iowa City High school. The altercation's video caption was highly derogatory towards City High, as is typical of a rival high school's barstool sports-type account. The replies to the tweet included hateful personal attacks on an individual City High player, as well as pejorative comments about the basketball team, coaching staff, and the school as a whole. Additional replies to the tweet alluded to instances, unrelated to the game, that portrayed Fairfield negatively. I am disappointed that the Gazette would deem an anonymous, high school, barstool sports-type Twitter account an appropriate source to embed in a news article. I recognize this is common practice as Twitter is a public forum, but in this case, the context in which the video was presented was unnecessarily inflammatory. Shouldn't the newspaper want to distinguish itself from social media by adhering to journalistic ethics, e.g. objectivity, respect, fairness, protection of privacy, etc.? Was that the only way to obtain the video or simply the easiest? As a newer subscriber to the Gazette, I was disheartened. Gary Driscoll of Iowa City. And Art Johnson of Edgewood writes, Let's call school choice what it really is. The Iowa legislature has all but ensured the demise of many smaller rural districts and added significantly to the financial woes of urban districts by siphoning off critical funds to private schools. This is happening in a time when consistent, inadequate funding has many districts already operating on fumes. Under the guise of school choice promoted heavily in slick advertising paid for by out-of-state detractors of public education, the Republicans are willingly destroying it. Public education is the great equalizer in a democratic system, and the Republican majority, rather than ensuring great public education, seems bent on destroying that noble effort. Let's call it what it is, a war on public education. As evidence, one only needs to look at House File 1, now being discussed at the State House. Its provisions would all but prevent the use of bonds for school facility improvements by requiring a 10% down payment on a potential project from funds that simply are not available. If not a war on schools, why does the bill refer only to schools? There is no mention of bonding as related to municipal or county needs. The purpose of a bond referendum is for local patrons, not the legislature, to decide on an increase in their own taxes to meet needs, and passage requires a supermajority of 60%. One has to assume that the concern for local control that Republicans have touted so much in the past was lip service. Art Johnson of Edgewood. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 29, 2023, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Feldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. In the other notices, Edward Healy, known as Ted, age 98, passed away on January 25th. A memorial service is planned for Saturday, February 18th, at the First Presbyterian Church in Cedar Rapids. A full obituary is upcoming. Gerald Lloyd Anderson, known as Jerry, age 83, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Thursday, January 26th, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Celebration of Life Gathering will be from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, March 4th, at the Palo Community Center, located at 2800 Hollenbeck Road in Palo. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids is caring for Gerald and his arrangements. Gerald served in the U.S. Army from 1962 to 64. He worked at PMX for over 25 years. He enjoyed gardening, playing cards, viewing wildlife from his backyard window, 
and spending time with family and friends. Ruby K. Mosier, age 96, of Cedar Rapids, died at January 25th. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 2nd, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids, with a visitation one hour prior. Burial will take place at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Ruby worked in food service at Kmart for over 29 years until her retirement in 1988. She was a member of First Lutheran Church. Ruby enjoyed bird watching, gardening, and preparing Amana-style dinners. She also found joy in traveling with her close friends on extended vacations. Patricia Jean Williams, born Patricia Jean Foley, entered eternal life peacefully on January 11th at Mercy Medical Center. A private family service was held. Patricia was a wonderful cook and enjoyed trying new recipes. She also enjoyed gardening, her newfound love of crafting, and let's not forget the casino. Nancy Lee Bell, age 62, of Cedar Rapids, passed away surrounded by her loving family on January 20th at her home. A celebration of Nancy's life will be from 2 to 5, 5 p.m. Saturday, March 4th, at Shores Event Center, Cedar Rapids. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service of Cedar Rapids. Nancy began her lifelong career as an administrative assistant in 1978, first with People's Bank in the Consumer Lending Department, and Nancy officially retired from Collins Aerospace in July of 2020. Nancy will be remembered for her loving care of her family and friends and the time she spent with them. She was everyone's cheerleader, sharing encouragement whenever possible. One of her life's missions was to raise awareness and research funds for the International Fibrodysplasia Ossificans Progressiva Association. Soon after her son, Chris's FOP diagnosis as toddler, Nancy did all she could to help. Through golf outings, social events, and silent auctions, Nancy and a special group of friends and family raised well over $150,000. Laurel R. Sills, age 91, of Tipton, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away of a long illness on January 21st at Cedar Manor Nursing Home. A visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 1st, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memory Stateroom, Funeral services will be held at 3 p.m. Thursday, February, no date, Thursday, February, at Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories. Laurel was an avid bowler throughout her life. In the early 1970s, you would find her at Lancer Lanes, and she won many local tournaments, as well as some in Las Vegas. She was also an enthusiastic Iowa Hawkeyes and Green Bay Packers fans. She and Dale enjoyed camping, traveling, listening to bands, and dancing. Dorothy M. Johnson, age 92, of Marion, passed away on Thursday, January 26th, at the Views in Marion. In agreement with her wishes, cremation has taken place. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 23rd, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where a visitation will be held one hour prior. Interment will follow the service at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Dorothy worked for Collins Radio and later worked as an office manager at PhotoPro, she was a former member of First Lutheran Church and an active member of Waltonian Archery Ladies Auxiliary. Dorothy loved to cook and was amazing at it. She loved to listen to the Open Line Recipe Show on WMT Radio and would frequently call in. Dorothy volunteered at Garfield Elementary School as one of the picture ladies. She loved songbirds and enjoyed feeding them. Robert E. Grimm of Santa Fe, New Mexico, Cedar Rapids native and longtime Santa Fe, New Mexico resident, Robert E. Grimm, or known as Bob, age 73, crossed over on January 12th after a lingering illness. 
Bob was a lover of music, both as a performer and listener. He played saxophone in school bands and community bands in Cedar Rapids and in New Mexico. He was an outdoorsman, enjoying hiking, camping, canoeing, cycling, sailing, and fishing. He enjoyed cooking and fine food and maintained his university interest in history and philosophy throughout his life. A private celebration of Robert Grimm's life will be held at a future date. Timothy Murfield, age 67, of Viola, died peacefully at his home on January 22nd. A celebration of life will be held 11 a.m. Sunday, February 5th, at the Whittier Community Building. The memorial service will start at 1 p.m. The family has already held a private interment. Getch Funeral Home, Anamosa, has taken a Tim and his family into their care. Tim was a member of the Practical Farmers of Iowa. He enjoyed taking care of his many horses, cooking, dancing, and thrift store shopping. He especially enjoyed time with his grandchildren. He started working at Hearn Oil and Tire in Monticello, where he learned the tire business, and he later operated his own tire business at his parents' farm north of Monticello. Judy K. Novotny, born Judy K. Travis of Central City, on January 2nd, Judy unexpectedly passed away from this world and into the next from complications due to a fall at her home. She was born in 1947. Judy enjoyed doing anything outdoors and was fully engaged with country life. A remembrance celebration of life will be held later this year when the grass turns green and the flowers bloom. Daniel E. Sandoval, known as Dan, age 81 of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 25th at the Views of Marion from complications of Alzheimer's. Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, January 31st, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. Visitation will also be held one hour prior to service on Wednesday at the church. Funeral service will begin at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 1st, at Marion Methodist Church in Marion, with full military honors by the American Legion Post 298 and the United States Air Force Honors Detail. Entombment will be at 1.30 p.m. Thursday, February 2nd, at Sunset Memorial Gardens in McChesney Park, Illinois. Dan enlisted in the U.S. Air Force for four years after high school and learned the trade of being an air traffic controller. He was assigned to Rockford, Illinois, where he worked faithfully for 15 years. He was then transferred to Springfield, Illinois, where he became a tower supervisor until his promotion to tower manager in Dubuque. The family moved to Cedar Rapids, where Dan was the tower manager for the Eastern Iowa Airport until his retirement in 1995. Dan later worked at Barnes & Noble for 12 and a half years. Janice Ruth Bennett, age 74, of Mechanicsville, passed away January 18th following a sudden illness. A celebration of life is planned for a later date. Janice worked for the State of Iowa Department of Motor Vehicles for many years. Keith Edward Binger, 63, of Irving, Texas, formerly of Hiawatha, passed to the loving care of God and Jesus on January 9th at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. Keith was cremated and will be laid to rest next to his mother, Faye Binger. Graveside services will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids in the spring when the weather has warmed and all things are renewed. Keith moved to Irving, Texas. He began a career with Irving Countertops. They gave Keith a true home to work for. He loved his job and was grateful for the faith and confidence Marvin showed him over the years. When he was unable to continue working, he missed the friendship of his co-workers. Keith was the ultimate Iowa Hawkeye sports fan, especially for Iowa football and basketball. It was everything Iowa Hawkeye, and he proudly wore his Iowa jackets, t-shirts, pants, and shoes. 
Stephen Vosatka, age 74, of Cedar Rapids, passed away unexpectedly from complications of bronchitis on January 24th. Visitation from 10 to 11 a.m. with memorial service following at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 4th, at Bross Chapel in the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Burial following the service in Czech National Cemetery. Music was Steve's life and his passion. By age five, he was playing the piano by ear, virtually without music, as if it had been memorized. He studied music at Drake University and graduated from Cornell College. <clears throat> he earned a Master of Music and Piano Performance from Thornton School of Music at USC Los Angeles. Over the years, Steve's career included working for the Ulm Theater Ballet and SM Theater Ballet in Germany and Het National Ballet Amsterdam. He taught vocal and piano students, participated in European master classes and summer music festivals in Graz, Austria, and the United States. He was a church organist and music director for various churches in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. The highlight in his career was serving as pianist for Greg Smith Singers, which included many concerts, special performances, and tours. Claudine Harris of Iowa City died peacefully on December 12, 2022, in her home at Oak Knoll Retirement Residence in Iowa City. Her life and work revolved around language, science, writing, reading, photography, and gourmet food. She loved travel and was a frequent appreciator of the performing arts. Described by her friends as a true humanist, Claudine cared about social issues and was active in service and volunteerism. Claudine's early career involved work in radiation detectment in instrumentation and her more than 30-year career in technical writing and editing, freelancing, and working at child health specialty clinics, followed by 12 years at Information Systems Department of the University of Iowa. Her volunteer work included leadership positions with the League of Women Voters of Johnson County, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the Cardinal Council of Girl Scouts, and the Unitarian Universalist Society of Iowa City. She also cultivated a large garden of perennials at Oak Knoll. I'm sorry, I am not seeing services. Anne May Hansen, Anna May Hansen, age 94, of Bertram, passed away peacefully on January 22nd at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. The family will greet friends and family from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 3rd at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 4th at the funeral home. Burial will follow a Czech National Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Anna was a phenomenal cook and baker. She made the best kolaches ever. Many of her recipes were in Anna's head, a little of this and a little of that. When she wasn't working, where she and her husband owned and operated a national janitorial service in Cedar Rapids for many years, Anna enjoyed being outdoors, fishing, spending time in her garden, and pruning her flowers. Perry Ellis Smith, age 83, of Surprise, Arizona, and formerly of both Cedar Rapids and Okaboji, passed away on December 23, 2022, after complications from an ongoing long-term respiratory condition. A family celebration of life ceremony will be scheduled in Perry's hometown of Okaboji later this spring. Perry, after graduating from high school, enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served four years in the Army and then attended Iowa Lakes Community College and received a degree in accounting. He, in the fall of 1975, Perry purchased Vasey Insulation Company in Marion, which he owned and operated until his retirement in 2001. The business thrived under Perry's ownership and grew to three total locations in eastern Iowa. In addition to the insulation business, Perry also pursued his love of home building. He built several custom homes in the area and lived in many of them over the years. 
Jane Ann Souter, age 74, of Marion, passed away January 24th at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Family will greet friends and family from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 1st, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A Mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 2nd, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion, with an additional visitation one hour prior to the service. The Reverend David O'Connor will officiate. Jane worked full-time as a teacher for Kennedy High School in Cedar Rapids, where she coached freshman volleyball and refereed many volleyball games. She also worked part-time at Kay's Merchandise and ran volleys during the summers. Upon retirement from teaching, Jane enjoyed being an adjunct instructor at Kirkwood Community College, where she would share her knowledge in technology. She volunteered at and was the current president of the Lynn Community Food Bank. Jane enjoyed playing golf and even had a hole-in-one at St. Andrew's Golf Course on September 7, 2021. She loved traveling, trivia, playing cards, and granny basketball. Turning to the sports page, right in the middle in Iowa women's basketball, in between rough start and finish, Hawkeyes flash enough to win by Jeff Linder of the Gazette in Iowa City. They were slow out of the gate and they limped to the finish line, but in between, the Iowa Hawkeyes assembled about 21 minutes of pinpoint action and that was enough. It was a win, coach Lisa Bluter said, after 10th-ranked Iowa held off Nebraska, 80-76, in a Big Ten women's basketball battle before an announced crowd of 13,843 Saturday afternoon at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. It wasn't a pretty win. We did what we needed to do, but we didn't put the fear in them like I wanted to put the fear in them. Caitlin Clark registered 33 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists, and the Hawkeyes, 17-4 overall, 9-1 in the Big Ten, won their sixth straight game, their 12th in the last 13, and rejoined Indiana in a first-place tie. Credit a second-quarter bonanza that flipped the game Iowa's way. Iowa trailed 21-11 late in the first quarter and still 21-15 at the end of the period. But Molly Davis opened the second quarter with a three-pointer, igniting a 26-9 show that then enabled the Hawkeyes to take a 41-30 lead into the locker room. We got a lot of tips and deflections, Clark said. Our zone defense was really good. We had some big three-pointers in transition. Clark's two free throws gave Iowa its largest lead of the game at 58-40, and the Hawkeyes still enjoyed a 67-50 bulge heading to the fourth quarter. Then, well, the game got a lot closer than it should have. Nebraska, 12-9, 4-6, opened the final period with 12 straight points to slide within 67-62. Iowa restored the lead to 12 on a couple of occasions, but Isabel Bourne converted on an inbounds pass to make it 75-70 with 1.53 left. Kate Martin had a key steal in the final minute when the Huskers threatened to make it a one-possession game. Nobody panicked. We were down 10 early, and nobody thought we were going to lose at the end, Clark said, but they're not situations we want to be in. Bluter said, every time you get through something difficult, it's going to make you better. We didn't play poorly, but we didn't play to our capabilities. Iowa missed its first seven shots, committed four early turnovers, and trailed 6-0 three minutes into the game when the game was halted for about 10 minutes due to a clock malfunction. Clark's three-pointer got Iowa on the board at the 522 mark of the first quarter. Monica Cisnano added 17 points and seven rebounds, and Hannah Stulkeach chipped in with 12 points. We talked about going off the dribble more. It worked better than posting them up, Stulkey said. A freshman from Cedar Rapids, Stulkey had the high, Hawkeyes' highest efficiency at plus nine. I think I've made a lot of progress, she said. I used to be antsy and turn the ball over. The game has slowed down a lot. Iowa was at, without McKenna Warnock, ribs injury for the second straight game. I thought she'd be closer to being ready today, Bluter said. I don't know when she'll be back. And a brief Associated Press story about Brock Purdy from Irrelevant to the Brink of the Super Bowl. Brock Purdy's NFL career started out with a moniker of Mr. Irrelevant and the week-long trip to Newport Beach to celebrate the player picked last in the draft. 
With one more win, Purdy's rookie season in the NFL will end on the brightest stage of all as a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl for the San Francisco 49ers. It's been an improbable nine-month journey from the trip to Disneyland, golf tournament, and a roast where he received the Lozman Trophy as the last draft pick to the NFC title game today when the 49ers, who are 15-4, visit the Philadelphia Eagles 15-3. Going to the NFC Championship, it means a lot to us and for myself, Purdy said. When I take a step back, it's pretty cool. Very thankful. The former Iowa State standout is set for perhaps his toughest test yet when he faces an Eagles defense that led the NFL with 70 sacks and must deal with an imposing road environment. Purdy handled the crowd noise well in his first road start at Seattle last month, with coach Kyle Shanahan telling him at the time it was important to deal with it before the postseason. Purdy has aced every test he's faced so far and already has become perhaps one of the most productive Mr. Irrelevant since the title was first handed out in 1976. He is the third rookie quarterback to win two playoff starts, the fifth to reach the conference title as a starter, and will look to be the first to reach the Super Bowl. And finally today, the History Happenings column, written by Jessica Klein, with help from her dad, Rob Klein, see our students discover history. Iowa big students create virtual tours of Lynn County history. The younger of this column's two scribes, who developed a love of history while in middle school, loves projects that connect students to the history of our community. The History Center developed just such a project in collaboration with Iowa Big, an initiatives and projects-driven school program, and the City of Cedar Rapids History Happened Here program. The virtual museum project, known as Lynn There Done That, invited Iowa Big students to engage with a variety of materials from the History Center's archives and research a location in Lynn County from its earliest days to contemporary times. The students then developed virtual tours of a site featuring video, text, audio, and images from the archival materials. The tours can be enjoyed from the comfort of your home via computer at thehistorycenter.org, or you can go to one of the locations and use your mobile device as you walk the area. One of the tours that caught our eye is 200 First Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids, the site of an F&M bank branch. The distinctive building was built as part of an expansive urban renewal project that began in 1969 and which remade First Street almost entirely. The virtual tour begins much earlier, with the first entry in the tour material saying this area was part of the town of Kingston, a community of about 400 people and named for David King. In 1870, residents of Kingston elected to have their town annexed by Cedar Rapids, and this area then became known as West Cedar Rapids. According to the tour materials, one of the primary landmarks of First Street Southwest for many years was the Troy Laundry Company at 216 First Street Southwest. The company's motto was, Let the Troy Bring You Joy. Urban renewal projects in the 1960s sought to remove blight in the business district, according to a May 6, 1969 Gazette article. Buildings on the river side of First Street Southwest were replaced by an expansive riverfront park system. Buildings on the other side of the street were replaced with modern concrete buildings like the F&M Bank building. The one exception was another bank. The People's Savings Bank at 101 Third Avenue Southwest was spared due to its history. Built in 1911, People's Savings Bank was designed by the famed architect Louis Sullivan and was the second of his jewel box banks in the Midwest. The Lynn There Done That tour ends with a note that the FMN Bank building, originally built as the American Federal Savings and Loan, was the largest of the new concrete buildings that sprang up during the urban renewal process. Of course, the history of First Street Southwest doesn't end with the end of the tour. Since the period covered, additional changes to the area include the transformation of People's Savings Bank into a restaurant, the creation of the McGrath Amphitheater in the aftermath of the 2008 flood, and the current construction of the first and first project in the 100 block. 
but the Lynn Nair Done That Tour provides a deeper understanding of the area so that we can see the connections and changes between the past, present, and future of our community. We encourage you to take a look and to celebrate the research of young people in our community who are committed to the preservation of our shared history. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 29th, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Feltudo, reading to you as most of the time for my kitchen table in Coralville, where the sun is shining on the snow outside and the neighbor's black dog is frolicking in the snow. Remember that we you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We do welcome your comments and thank you for listening.